This podcast episode is brought to you by Derm Health Co., Australia's only skin health platform with over 700 qualified practitioners, treatment providers, and support groups. Derm Health Co. exists to provide education, community, and treatment options to support the health of skin following trauma, disease, or injury. We serve the patient, the carer, and the practitioner through unique solutions tailored to every single step of the skin health journey, from discovery and first diagnosis to treatment options, community support networks, through to providing a source of referrals for practitioners. Visit us at www.dermhealth.co. Whether you have a skin interest, a skin query, a skin trauma, or skin disease, I warmly welcome you to Heal Thy Skin, a podcast brought to you by Derm Health Co. I'm Marnie, dermal clinician, dermoscopist, and your podcast host. Skin is deeper than beauty, and our mission is to build the largest platform of specialized practitioners focused on skin health and skin empowerment. Join me each week where we go deep into the skin and beyond to hear stories and education from leading practitioners on a journey of skin health. Have you heard of cording? Cording is also known as axillary web syndrome and can happen weeks or months after breast conserving surgery, mastectomy, or axillary surgery. It feels like a tight cord running from the armpit down the inner arm, sometimes to the palm of the hand. Some people can feel and see the raised cord-like structures across their arm, and these cords may limit movement. Today, we are speaking with a specialist on this exact topic. Welcome to the Heal Thy Skin podcast. I'm Marnie, your host, and today I am speaking with Denise Stewart, occupational therapist of breast and shoulder rehab. Denise has been practicing in rehabilitation care for nearly 40 years as an occupational therapist, and in the 1990s, Denise started working in one of the first rehab services to breast cancer survivors in lymphedema care. Since then, Denise has dedicated her private research into other rehabilitation services required by breast cancer survivors. This has focused on treating the post-surgical and radiation damage. Denise is a private clinician and educator and has been the founder of several breast cancer rehab awareness projects. In this interview, we speak specifically about the annual Breast Cancer Rehabilitation and Wellness Summit. Denise is now training other allied health professionals in the assessment and treatment of physical impairments after breast cancer. And today, Denise shares how her journey into occupational therapy inspired her specialization into breast cancer rehabilitation and the importance of addressing cording. I started by asking Denise what she thought was the biggest misconception about breast cancer recovery. There's lots of misconceptions in the recovery and it's mostly because people are they're sent home with the expectation that they will recover from the many symptoms that they've developed after breast cancer. And so the ones that I see is that people actually expect that they'll recover their full arm movement and that they won't have any pain after breast cancer. And so people usually wait for a couple of months And then when they don't get that movement back and they still have pain, then they start 
thinking that this must be something that they have to live with. So that's another misconception. So the misconception number one is that they will get better. Then the second misconception is that they have to live with that. And you've been working in this field for quite some time. Do you remember the exact moment when you decided to pursue the specialisation with supporting both women and men following breast cancer? It was probably in the 90s and I was working with people after breast cancer or other cancers and they'd had lymphedema. And when I, so in those days, I was just working on compression garments. So as an occupational therapist, then I would be measuring people up and getting them used to wearing a garment all day to manage their swelling. And that in itself takes a lot of training. So I, you know, worked really hard to do that and felt really confident. And so then when you feel confident in something, then you can open your eyes to other things. And so what I realized was that people were having difficulty getting their garment on. And so they were struggling with moving their arm in a way, and this is the arm on the side of the breast cancer surgery, moving their arm to get their garment up. And so when I asked them how they raised their arm, they just couldn't. They couldn't get their arm up any higher. And so this was something that, you know, no one had really spoken to me about as a therapist. That it was, again, you know, the woman just said, well, this is, you know, they never brought the subject up. So, you know, back to that misconception, you know, they just thought they had to live with this. So I went to the physio and of the clinic and um, said, you know, what are you doing for these ladies? And remember, this is in the 90s. So there was some pretty serious radiotherapy in those days and a lot of mastectomies in those days. And so I said to them, you know, what sort of exercises and what are you doing for this, this shoulder problem that I see that these women have? And so the physios said quite confidently, um, well, we're, we're giving them exercises and stretches And, you know, straight away in my head, I go, well, that's not working. And again, the physio didn't mention why the person had this problem of being able to raise their arm. So then I went to, because we were in a clinic, I was able to like watch people get their lymphedema treatment from the nurses. And so they were often behind a curtain and they had their skin of their chest exposed and, you know, I would normally just buy, I'd walk past the curtain, wait for them to be dressed and see them then. But I thought, I'm going to check this out. And so when I knuck my nose and my eyes into the curtain, I really couldn't believe what I saw. I saw, first of all, this was a lady with a mastectomy and that her scar was so tight on her chest. You could see that it was really quite damaged. I could see that there was red and purple on the chest, which then I was to find out that that was radiotherapy damage. And then I realized that this was what people were living with and that they then thought that this was normal and didn't tell people about it. And so that's when I thought I've got to do something about that to bring some change to this whole situation of women really suffering in silence with their breast cancer scar tissue. What a story and how much it's changed since then. So Denise, can you explain a little bit more about what happens to the skin following either lumpectomy, mastectomy or any breast surgery, including breast reconstruction for that matter? 
Let's just start with lumpectomy. Lumpectomy is where they actually take a little bit of tissue out, so the cancer tissue out. And so they make an incision and usually they try and make the, the incision in a least observable place. And so when I first started, the, the incision would be close by to, the, to where the cancer was. But now they're doing incisions that they feel can hide. And so the incision now might be, say, around the nipple or it might be to the side of the breast so it can hide behind clothing. And so the incision is where they open it up and then they go in. And so because the incision now can be further away from where they've detected the cancer, then they have to actually go through more tissue to get to the cancer location where they dissect that. And so then that's with the lumpectomy. So the incision is one scar that you see on the skin, but the other scar is down where the dissection was. So it's down within the breast tissue. So if we think about then the difference between that and lumpectomy and mastectomy, mastectomy is when the incision is made so that they can then remove most of the breast tissue and the cancer tissue. And so the incision through the skin is usually horizontal across the chest. Some doctors use a little bit of a diagonal incision. So then the dissection is where the entire fatty tissue of the breast is removed. And then they work out how much skin that people need to close it up. And so not all of the breast skin is needed to close, so they then dissect a section of skin that still allows enough movement in the skin for the arm to move, and then they sew it back up again. So with a mastectomy, then you've got a much longer horizontal or slightly diagonal scar, but the underlying scar tissue is deeper, so it's on the chest wall where the dissection occurred, so where the knife or the diathermy um, scalpel um, cuts away the tissue. So there's the surface scar on the skin and then a deep scar. I probably won't go to the reconstruction because what I would like to spend some time about is talking about the node dissection. And so when people have nodes removed, for mastectomy, what they do is while that that area is opened up, then they'll go to the where the nodes are, which is up in the, I don't know, to the side chest in towards the top of the armpit. And so then they use that same opening in mastectomy to go up and take out lymph nodes and that's the number of lymph nodes varies depend on their assessment of the spread of the cancer and so then it's not a separate scar on the skin but for lumpectomy it might be a long way from where that original scar might be the original dissection and so there's often another scar towards the front of the armpit where the doctor goes in, so opens up and then goes into the nodes and dissects the nodes out that they determine are needed, the number that they think is needed. So when people have a lymph node dissection, sometimes that's a second scar on the skin. 
I see. And before you were talking about the reference to the scarring, the significant scarring that we used to see 20 more years ago, and I believe that things have changed, so we're seeing less full mastectomies and more lipectomies occurring. However, we are still seeing cording occur. And for those that may not know what cording is, are you able to provide a brief explanation and also some questions that you use to determine if someone has actually experienced cording? You know, Manina, when I was looking, you know, back in the 90s as to what what was stopping women from getting full reach of their arm. You could see that the muscle, the muscle certainly tightened up and so stopped people moving up. And you could see that the skin was very tight and stopped people from reaching up. But there was this other tight band that I really didn't know what it was. It was it looked like a piece of steel wire. And in some people it looked like a thin piece of steel, like a two mils thin. And I say steel because it was so tight when people raised their arm. And I really, at that time in the 90s, you know, people didn't know what this was. And I certainly didn't know a structure that in this location that could present so tightly. And then in other people, that tight band it was even 15 to 20 to 25 centimetres across. So I knew it wasn't a tendon. It wasn't in the location of a tendon. I knew it wasn't a muscle. And so what it turned out to be was the, which they did, you know, they spent years and it's only just in the last couple of years that they've worked out what it is. And it's the lymphatic vessels that go from the chest the side of the chest or the front of the chest, they normally go down across into the armpit and they go down into the arm. And the lymphatic vessels are the ones that they collect. They collect water and they collect toxins and it's like the cleanup system. And so what this tight band is that I was observing was that this lymphatic system was going into spasm, for want of a better word, And so then, you know, the research is now still not sure as to the mechanism of how it occurs, but I feel very confident that the adhesion of the lymphatic vessels occurs where the surgery occurred. So scar tissue forms and scar tissue then like adheres onto the lymphatic vessels that are normally there. I kind of think it's like, if I can explain, it's like an onion bag. And so we all get those kind of plastic stretchy bags that buy your onions in. And so if you stretch that onion bag out when you've got a whole bag of onions in, like six onions or eight onions in there, then that webbing really stretches open. And that's how the lymphatic system normally looks. It's really wide and open. But if you then take out the onions and then hold that, that, that webbing of the bag and then try and with one hand and then try and stretch it out with the other, then you can see that it stops the webbing from stretching. And so it, in fact, using an onion bag, you can create something that looks like the webbing, the cording that I'm seeing in women. So if I then go to the next part of the question, is that how do people know whether they've got cording and how do I test for that? 
then the tricky thing is that it, it's then underneath or just quite quite close by the, the pec muscle. And so when people raise their arm up to the highest position they can, say, towards their ear, then people might see, and if they're looking in the mirror, they might see that there's a, this extra tight band there and that that they can so it's it's only observed on reach so when the arm is going to the highest reach that they can do for some people when they it's early days then when they go to reach it actually causes them pain and the pain is always in the arm and it can range from being in the upper arm or even as far as the elbow and down into the wrist and so when they then look in the mirror and see this band, sometimes they, and with their arm on stretch, sometimes they can even see that it tracks down to, so this tight band tracks down, it's on the surface of the skin into the elbow so they can see tiny little tight bands in the elbow and then sometimes they can see the tight bands in the wrist. So when it's seen in the, it's quite surface to the skin. When it's seen at the underarm beside the pec muscle, it's a little deeper. So it's a little less easy to see there. How interesting. I didn't realize the relationship between the lymphatic system and cording. Just as a side question, I'm wondering what's the correlation between those that have cording and those that experience lymphedema? There's not quite a relationship there. People that have cording don't necessarily go on to having lymphedema. So there's been research on that and sometimes yes and sometimes no. So there's no clear correlation between that, it, which really blows your mind, you know, like that fact that you can have some parts of the lymphatic system that are being adhered and yet the system still works, the lymphatic system still works. Because if you thought that there was a clear correlation, then every person with cording would have lymphedema, and that's certainly not the case. Yeah, really interesting. And there are a series of five questions that you ask patients to determine if cording has occurred. Can you go through those just for any listeners um, to see if they may be resonating with any of these questions that you often ask in a consultation so the first question is firstly do you avoid touching your mastectomy scar and this is not necessarily specific to cording but it's just an indication that things are not going so well in there that it can be tight so that's the first question do you avoid touching your mastectomy scar the second one is does the mastectomy scar look uneven across your chest? And these are the questions for people with mastectomy. Think about it. If you've had a lumpectomy or a breast reconstruction, you can still get cording. So just replace the word mastectomy with what surgery that you've had. So is the scar uneven? So in the mastectomy scar, it would be that it, you can actually see that it's adhered to the deeper layers of your chest. If it was a lumpectomy, you would see that there might be a, a sunken in or a drawing in of the scar on the breast. The third one is that is there puckering? 
And the puckering just says that, you know, like there's some serious scar tissue happening here. And, you know, puckering, puckering, like when you sew something and the tension's not right. And so there's lots of creases. And so the same thing, you know, in the chest, that the puckering means that the tension's just not right. And so, again, the link to cording is that more scar tissue, more likely to adhere to the lymphatic vessels that are nearby. The fourth one is, is the chest painful when someone hugs you? And so that's indicating that there's some very deep scar tissue and that also can indicate there's the likelihood of, of that deep scar tissue also connecting with the cording. And that the final one which we've spoken about is that when you lift your above your head, that it doesn't go all the way and that last little bit, you get that pinging pain into your arm. So do you get a pinging pain into the arm, the elbow or the wrist when you raise your arm? And you were talking before about incisions and how this can have an effect on cording or cause cording, but there are other treatments that can have a direct effect on the skin. So how do cancer treatments affect the skin? Well, one of the biggest other effects on the skin is radiotherapy. And radiotherapy is an important part of the cancer journey for many people. And what they get is something like four to six weeks of radiotherapy And what they're finding now is that the doses are different for everybody and the location is different to everybody. And that the location of radiotherapy and then extra dosing of radiotherapy can really make a difference to the stretch in the skin and the stretch in the tissues that are underneath, which in this case would be the breast tissue or the the muscles, which is pec major and pec minor. And so radiotherapy really changes it causes inflammation and it changes the vascular the vascular quality, the quality of the vessels of the vascular system in the area, and it changes the quality of the skin and it changes the quality of the muscle tissue and it changes the quality for life, which is, again, you know, if I had to add the third misconception is that once radiotherapy is done, it's done, but no, it actually has an impact and just very, very recently in the research, they've actually measured the, being able to measure the, the ability of the tissues to stretch and the impact. And I, do, and I say impact with a, a distortion is probably a better word. So they've used ultrasound, um, ultra wave, um, sorry, they're using elastography ultrasound. And what they've sent, they can send in an energy and they can measure how quickly that energy dissipates through the tissues. They're now finding that the energy, the dissipation is quite slow in the skin, I say in the skin, but they've actually measured only the muscles. This is very new technology, so pec major. And that people that have had a serious dose of, of radiotherapy have a reduced stretch as determined by the ultrasound, elastographic ultrasound. And I've felt this for years, but they now can determine that that's a thing. 
And do 100% of those that have had breast cancer experience these types of changes? No, Manina. The numbers vary, and but over the last 10 to 20 years, the numbers are consistent and they haven't reduced down. So the numbers of people that have problematic scarring, problematic cording or problematic radiotherapy can range for something like 50% to what I think is 80%. And and the the research says 50 to 80%, and that depends on the time and the type of assessment that people use and that people are rarely evaluated for cording. So it's most likely that that number is is closer to 80% if they actually assessed it properly and that problematic scar tissue is not assessed as well. But what they do assess is a dysfunction in arm reach, a dysfunction in being able to do day-to-day jobs, and quality of life and so they the research is very clear that the numbers of people that have a dysfunction is 50 to 80 percent but the research is not clearly stated what the impairment is it's only because of my work in in hands-on touching of the women that i have a, a clear understanding of those impairments yes that number is just absolutely staggering It is. You know, the lymphedema care was brought in because 30% of women had a lymphedema problem. And I just wonder, you know, like, why does it take this long to for women to get help in these areas when the rates are so much higher than lymphedema care? And in your experience, if someone starts having interventions with an OT or a physio with the treatments that you're going to describe in a later question, the earlier that they have it, will it be the less they experience these types of outcomes or can they experience increase or what I mean is a betterment of these symptoms at any time after their actual treatment? Yes. So let's just hit the any time after first because what is amazing is that I see, I and other therapists in the area see women that are two years, five years, eight years, 15 years down the track, which down the track is after their surgery, and that the changes, changes can still happen then changes in the softness of the skin and the tightness of the scar tissue. But the changes may be, will will give a change in range of movement. And that might be like a 20 degree or a 40 degree or even a 60 degree range of movement increase, even though it's that late after. I get to see some people at the early stages and it certainly does make a difference and you would think that getting better range of movement as soon as possible um, is is going to be better for the person and better for the scar tissue so I am really trying to push early intervention and that there are few places in the world where they are doing early intervention and so for an example I was just talking to a colleague in Italy where she is sees people at 10 days after their surgery and that she's now make, doing new treatment techniques 
for the scar tissue and she's used to seeing people at two and four and six weeks after surgery and she's excited about the changes that she's seeing at 10 days. So I think that it's a watch this space on the early intervention but I can just answer that question by saying yes it's possible early and that it makes sense to have early intervention and that and also yes that changes can happen at later stage. So what are some of the available treatments? Most of the treatments are hands-on and so it is that the person uses, the therapist uses a a scar tissue technique which is either a slow or a, a little bit faster stretch on the scar tissue. There's also low-level laser and one of the, the latest treatment techniques that we're using across the world is cupping and it's adapted cupping and that's exciting. So adapted cupping works like the hand stretching at the skin and the scar but it just works away from their body which is why it's so exciting. And what are some other risks of I would have said scar tissue but we now know that cording isn't necessarily scar tissue it's more of a deformity of the lymphatic system or the lymphatic capillaries so what are some other risks that may not just be range of motion but other things that people may experience well certainly range of motion is the first one and pain so shoulder pain so what happens is that even when people feel like they have a good return of movement if they have tight scar tissue what it does is it changes the way that the arm moves and so people can can report that two years after their surgery that they start getting shoulder pain and that's because the arm and the shoulder blade start working differently and so the shoulder blade moves more which then can create not only pain but it starts pressing down on the arteries veins and nerves that go to the arm and so there is an increasing risk for people to have brachial plexus injury in the many years after surgery. And again, the impairment is not known in research, but I know that the tightness of pec minor um, with the scar tissue um, and the limited arm movement just means that that pec minor gets tighter and tighter over the years. And so underneath pec minor is the arteries, veins and nerves that go to the arm. And so that's a, that's a perfect location for the brachial plexus impingement to occur. And Denise, are you able to share a favourite case study? Just recently, you know, it's always the ones, it still shocks me that people don't know what's going on. And so very recently we did a training program for health professionals in Darwin and and we were sponsored by the breast cancer group up there. And so one of the breast cancer group board members came along just to see what was going on. She was really active, like she's a sports trainer. She trains other people and she does her own training. And she came in really just inquisitive as to what we were getting up to and really didn't think that she had a problem with her movement because of all the work that she had done. 
But when you tested her arm movement at the big end ranges of pec major stretching, then she had limited movement. And it was this lady had a breast reconstruction. And so the therapist, when they were assessing her, found that the skin wasn't moving so much and that there was some cording and that the tissues deeper to the towards the pec major and the breast were quite thick and not soft and stretchy. And so within that one-hour session, they did the assessment, then they did the treatment, and the treatment is exactly like I just explained to you, hands-on treatment, some cupping. And instantaneously, the lady got like a good 20 to 30 degrees movement of the arm. And more importantly, her breast got softer. And so she just couldn't believe it. Just that seeing that eye opening, oh, my God, I didn't think this was possible, was just such a delight. And that she hadn't actually ever had since the breast reconstruction, the softness in her breast that she achieved in that one treatment session. Wow. And was this immediately after or was there a time frame between? Right at the end. You know, a treatment technique may take something like 30 seconds. It might take a minute. And what we do is we put it all together and it might take 15 minutes or 30 minutes for a, a combination of treatments because it's never in one spot. And so after every single treatment method, technique, then you can actually see changes, immediate changes in the skin or the tissue that you're working on. But then definitely that whole breast softness and the range of movement, we test at the end of the 15 minutes or 30 minutes. And so it's immediate. That's incredible. It is. And, you know, when we talk to, I talk to the doctors, you know, it's like they glaze over. They really don't understand how this works. And so it's quite, it's it's not intuitive, something that you think, well, maybe I just have to live with this. And so it's quite amazing. And, And the thing is that the body can respond, it can heal, and it can change immediately given the right technique. Yeah, how incredible. And also just to think that you can have an immediate response and it doesn't necessarily take 10, 20, 30 mm-hmm. sessions over a period of two years, to have that instantaneous response would just make people a believer, I guess, believer. straight away. They are, a believer. they are a believer. But the the funny thing is that, that people forget about it. So if they believe and they get some treatment, then they go away and you might not see them for six months. More like when I don't see them for two years. So they kind of forget the magic of it and they forget that radiotherapy is an ongoing issue. So it is a great result but it's always that the scar tissue and radiotherapy are acting so people do need to get that ongoing care you know at some stage after that and denise are you able to tell us about a time that perhaps you couldn't achieve what you wanted for your patient what was the outcome what do you think happened and how might you do something differently now if possible if i refer back now to the pre-cupping time And so when I would do what I I could with my hands and with the the low-level laser and that that there was still, um, you know, a lot of firmness in the tissues, 
And also, you know, I'll add in, I would be seeing these people six months, 12 months, 18 months after. And so knowing what I know now, then cupping can be introduced a lot earlier. It can be introduced when the tissue is healed. So definitely, you know, in that, you know, six to 12 weeks after surgery, cupping can be introduced. And there's no research on that, if I can add in, it's just my clinical experience on that. But gentle, adapted cupping can be introduced. And I think that if we can change the that stretch and that stretch away from the body earlier, then I think that we're going to have less problems and shoulder problems down the track. Mm. And what are some of your challenges from your role? Is Do you think it's awareness, complications? What are some of the biggest things that you see in treatment and perhaps either coming up a brick wall? Um, you mentioned before that these types of therapies aren't necessarily provided straight off the bat when someone has finished their cancer therapy. Yeah, and, that, you know, there's such a barrier. There's a barrier for... I won't say it's my role as occupational therapy, it's role for occupational therapy, physio or oncology massage, whichever therapy is looking at the rehab of patients. And so that the barrier is that does aren't referring, it's had, I didn't say aren't, it is such a low referral rate, um, especially in Australia for women and so that's one barrier and it's that that the breast care nurse we kind of think that the breast care nurse is the one that's helping women get what they need but the breast care nurses are just so busy that they are seeing squeezing in and seeing people as much as they can in hospital and they're not they're not the case manager so it's, the barrier is that people don't have a case manager to direct them into the many different therapies that they may need after their breast cancer, or if I can just say cancer, full stop, has the treatment is finished. So what would you like to see in the change of care and follow-up following breast cancer? I would love that there be a, a rehabilitation approach, that there is a rehabilitation physician that takes takes the lead that and in America this is the way that they're going that they're training up physicians that are specifically trained to understand and it's not breast cancer it's cancer rehabilitation and that under the physician there is a team of health professionals so it's multidisciplinary that there's um, physios OTs oncology massage there's naturopaths there's there's nutritionists there's, there's a whole range of therapists that are needed and that the person is transitioned from their, their cancer treatment into the rehab program at any time. And in, in some places they're actually doing that before they have surgery so that they're transitioned into the rehab um, to establish what limitations they have um, pre-surgery. And so pre-rehab is a thing in some places, in some places in the world, in some hospitals in the world, but it's few and far between. But And they're finding such great outcomes. So pre-rehab rehab and post-rehab would at a, at a timely intervention at, for the person would be fantastic. We actually spoke with Dr. Sue N. Lowe, who's the head of the breast unit at the Olivia Newton-John Centre at an event last year, and he was talking about um, the same issues that you're talking about, but 
also when someone is going through cancer treatment, they are having really regular appointments with their oncologists, with the nurses. And then once they go into remission, that's it. And there can be this sense of what now? I had all this hand holding, I had all these appointments. Um, and now that my treatment has stopped, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. And it's not this kind of transitional period. So it sounds like um, both for the recovery and to prevent cording and to prevent these more significant effects on someone's life, it's also just that ongoing support after treatment as well. Mm. And do you know, money that, you know, if people ended up normal at the end, they wouldn't need mm. hand-holding. Mm. And so the um, the intervention is really impacts on people's lives and we need to start recognising that that these people are can be hand-held to make them useful, happy members of their own community um, and return to work um, with much more ease than, than being unsupported and dealing with all of these side effects. And Denise, are you able to share perhaps three pieces of advice for someone that is experiencing pain following breast cancer or some of the symptoms that you've mentioned throughout this interview? Yeah, first of all is to see your doctor first, get whatever it is checked out because you just want to, you know, as soon as you get a cancer diagnosis, your brain just straight away goes, oh, it's a reoccurrence. And so you want to rule that out as quickly as possible. And the second one is then to find a therapist that's trained in oncology and scar tissue. And not every lymphedema therapist has that training. Not every therapist in the community has that training. So do you might there's a there's actually a, um, a website that we that started off in Australia foundation96.com they've got a listing because if you go to cancer council there is no listing there and BCNA does have a listing um, for therapists as well but foundation96.com is a great listing and then the third thing is know that the pain that you have is not a hundred percent damage it's not a hundred percent damaged nerves and that's a big part of the pain is skin and soft tissue changes and then the fear and so by knowing that it's not 100% damaged nerves, then that means that there's a percentage that is changeable. And so knowing that is really important. Thank you, Denise. And where can people find more about you and the work that you do? Um, if you go to breastandshoulderrehab.com, uh, and so that's breast and shoulder with a, um, a hyphen rehab.com, I'm uh, available for uh, services in Brisbane and also online services with the use of the, the amazing internet now. Um, and then also if I can just mention that, that there's a Breast Cancer Rehabilitation and Wellness Summit where you'll hear many, many therapists talk about the, how they manage side effects. So if you put in Breast Cancer Rehabilitation and Wellness Summit, then you've got a choice of 2016 to 2019 summits series that you can have free access to. Fantastic. And you usually release that at the end of each year. Is that right? Yeah, we have new speakers in December. 
every year and I might just change that money. We're actually having Cancer Rehab Awareness Week for the first time ever in April to May, the end of April to May. And so I think I might be hooking up my breast cancer summit with that with that awareness week. Oh, fantastic. So a little bit sooner this year. Yeah. Oh, well, we'll, we'll re-release it, I think. Not sooner because we've got such amazing information there from last year. So we'll just sure. re-share it again during that rehab week. Denise, where can people find more about you and the work that you do? Firstly, my website. So it's breastandshoulder-rehab.com. And that gets you into the work that I do in my clinic and online. And so um, people can connect with me on email just to talk about, to book in or to even have a complimentary 20-minute session online to see if, you know, what they have is rehabilitatable, um, if that's a word. And the second one is that if they type in breast cancer rehabilitation and wellness summit, then you'll find my other website that has the summits that we've been running from 2016 to 2019. And that summit is a collection of online interviews with health professionals from all over the world that are specialising breast cancer rehab. And so that information is there. What a fabulous resource. Well, thank you so much for being on today's show, Denise. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Mani. What a fantastic interview. Denise shared so much knowledge from her many, many years of experience in breast care and breast rehabilitation. And the three deeper than skin insights that stood out to me, it was hard to choose, but I'm just choosing three. Number one, cording is in fact hardened lymph capillaries. I did not know this until I spoke with Denise, says cording isn't part of my specialty area. And even Recently, in medical terms, it was only around the 1990s that they really discovered this. And it seems that more and more research is coming about now in the last couple of years about why it's caused, what's actually, um, what it's made up of. So I find that really interesting that while mastectomy has been done for many, many years now, cording is still relatively new and not necessarily known mainstream. Number two, we've heard other practitioners speak about scarring and the fact that a scar of any age can experience results or improvement. And Denise confirmed this again, that both scarring and cording, no matter how old, can see improvements even after one session with a specialist. And I just love that story that she shared um, where within one session the woman was able to move her arm uh, despite her being really fit and despite her doing lots of her own rehabilitation, even one session with Denise was able to improve that movement even more. So just really incredible. I'd love to see how this actually works in action. Um, And number three, this is the series of questions that Denise asks her patients to determine if they may be experiencing symptoms of courting. So I'm going to put out these questions now and I'm going to ask you, are you experiencing any of these or do you know someone that may have had breast cancer or some kind of breast surgery that may be experiencing some of these symptoms? Because if they have, it may be worth them speaking to a specialist. So number one is do you or your partner avoid touching the mastectomy scar? Number two, is the mastectomy scar uneven across the chest area? 
Number three, is the mastectomy scar puckered? Number four, is the chest painful when someone hugs? Hugs you, hugs your friend, uh, hugs, you know, your loved one. And number five, is lifting the arm above the head slower or harder than it used to be? So those are the questions that Denise asks her patients. Do you know anyone with these symptoms? Share this episode with them if they do, if you think they might, because it might just be the start of a journey for them to be able to increase movement, reduce pain, and get back to living their life and in a bit more of a comfortable way. Now, for breast cancer survivors, Denise is kindly offering a 20-minute complimentary video meetup to discover the rehabilitation needs. So if anything resonated with you in this episode and you have been a breast cancer survivor, then you can visit Denise, have a look in the show notes. She also said uh, in the episode where you can find her, but all the links are in the show notes and you can book that 20-minute complimentary video meetup. And if you are seeking a practitioner that can help to manage cording and you might not be in Denise's area, simply enter cording into the directory search bar of the Derm Health Co website and you'll be able to find someone um, in your local area. There are a few there. I did a search after this episode um, and with the cording kind of community learning more about Derm Health Co, hopefully we'll be able to have some more practitioners on the site. So if you know anyone that actually is practicing in cording type modalities, then get them to get in touch and make sure that they're listed on the site so that people can find them if they're searching for someone in their local area. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Heal Thy Skin podcast. Until next time, stay skin powered. If you're enjoying the Heal Thy Skin podcast and you know someone that may have a skin condition, skin interest or experienced a skin trauma, then share the podcast with them. It may help them more than you realize.